Uh, let's talk Ecuador. We welcomed back last week uh, a handful of ladies that went to Ecuador to spend a week. And I want to hear from them briefly and show you a video that will crush you. <laughs> it's coming. Get ready. Um, welcome back, ladies. And so we have my wife, Kelly. We have Stacy, Isabella. We have Shannon. We have Michelle. We're missing uh, Missy Laura. and Laura Tibbs, right? Okay. So, Kelly, start by telling us what you did. Uh, we were there for a week, and may, most of the week we taught at a school that was under um, a foundation called Nuevas Amigas Foundation, which is not associated with Compassion International, but we taught some academic lessons um, and put them all around um, the fruits of the Spirit in the Bible, which was kind of fun, and Shannon organized it all, our very own Rise and Shine teacher, uh, was really our lesson planner, and it, w and it went off really well for the whole um, school. And then on the middle of the week, um, we spent an entire day. If we had a Compassion International child that we've sponsored, we spent the whole day with them. Okay. Isabella, you are how old? Eleven. Eleven. What did you take away from the week? Like, how, how did that change you? What do you? How do you think differently because of the week? What was it like to be there? Anything you want to say about your week in Ecuador? Um, that I now realize how lucky I am to be to be here and like to live here in the United States. Were you scared to be there? Mm, not uh, really. Okay. What did you, what were some of the things you did during the day? Um, well, we taught the Nuevos Amigos. Um, we met our compassion child, Alan, and we got two more. We talked to my dad into getting a compassion child at Nuevos Amigos, <laughs> and his name is Christopher, and then me and my mom got another one named Leslie. Awesome. I'm glad you got to go. <laughs> yes. So, Stacy. You and his, and, and we're going to, so we'll, we'll like, this is like speed round. We'll, we'll unpack this all throughout the year and talk to everybody that went and things like that. But there was something very powerful that, uh, like an experience at a lunch. Talk about that very real experience. Set it up for us and what that did in your heart. Okay. So um, on the day that we met with our compassion child, um, we each uh, sat at our own table. So it was me, Isabella, um, our translator, um, Alan, our sponsor child, and his mother, and the center director, and she had brought her three-year-old child. And um, lunch in Ecuador is their big meal of the day, so the servings are huge. Um, so we're each faced with a plate, like a, a half a chicken with all the sides and everything like that. Um, so after we had got done eating, the translator had leaned over to me and said, is it okay if we uh, box up the leftovers? And I said, yes, of course. And so I was thinking he meant for them, that he was going to box up the leftovers and take them uh, with them. But he was actually referring to everybody at the tables. Um, they boxed up um, the entire table's food for uh, Ellen and his mom to take with them. So it's food that we had eaten off of. And, I, and once I realized this, I said to the translator, I said, well, we've, we've eaten off this. Um, we, Isabella manhandled her chicken, um, pulled the leg off. And so, um, <laughs> so it was, uh, it wasn't the most delicate operation. And so I said, oh, I said, well, we've eaten off of all of this. And he's like, I know that's okay. Um, but I just wanted to check and make sure it was okay if we took your, your food. So that's what they did. They boxed up everyone's food at the table into boxes and gave it to them for them to take home. So this would be like going up to random people at a restaurant 
taking their leftovers that they've eaten off of directly that, okay, so how did that impact you? Um, well, it, it made me um, realize and be a, a little ashamed about how much food I do throw away when there are people that are willing to eat my scraps um, and food that's, that I have touched. It, it made me a little ashamed that I throw away so much food and there's so much waste in my household. So you got, and I know I'm, I'm, I'm just serving this up because I know the answer. Um, here's a people that generally are under-resourced. How did that affect their spirit, their attitude, their walk with God? Um, even though they're, they're physically maybe lacking for something, there is nothing spiritually that they're lacking. Um, they're very, very happy, very joyful, very gracious, very grateful. Um, and we were just overwhelmed with how they treated us and, and were very kind. And their mindset is that um, when they're sitting down with you, the first thing that these kids do is share with you. So if they have a snack, not a piece goes into their mouth before they're reaching in and giving it to you because they want to share it with you. Yeah, I, like when I was there, we'd walk into these huts because we spent a lot of time actually in the, the, the little shack things and we'd walk in and like me, you know, I'm 5'10", 215 pounds. The kids were fascinated with, they would like reach up and like grab my neck. Um, yeah. And yet they're like giving me their food. I'm like, no, you, I'm good. You know, I can go for a while. Um, but they're just so crazy generous. Okay. Yes, now, Shannon, um, you got a video. Lead, lead us up into this video. Talk through what, compa- what sponsoring a kid real briefly like looks like, the back and forth, how you saw that interaction with the letters and things and what you do, what you did first service. Okay. So those of you, many of you already sponsor someone from Compassion, but if not, it's an international organization in which you can sponsor monthly um, a child. And I think all of us here learn firsthand exactly how much of a difference that really makes. It's one thing to see the packets back there, and it's another thing to write a letter. But what we experienced, I just my dream would be everyone in here could feel that what we felt because it just makes it so much more real. Um, the video really will show you some of that, but basically uh, it didn't work out that I have two compassion children. One showed up on the compassion day and the other one did not. And I want to share that my discouragement because um, ultimately it was all God's plan that it worked out the way it did. But I had to have Alex actually involved in the past. We had written her for 16 months. We're giving all this money, and we never heard anything. Um, and so, you know, it can be disheartening that you're all excited, and then you don't always hear from your child. Well, it ends up it had nothing to do with her. The village that she lives in is so poor that even the organization uh, there was bad. And so basically, to make a long story short... She found out within 24 hours she had to choose if she was going to come the next day to come meet me. On my end, I was going to have to leave the group, travel by taxi by myself in Ecuador, but God granted me the peace, and I did it. And um, this is the day that we met, and when we met her, uh, it was so emotional. The very first thing she did was hand me a file folder, and in which the file folder was every single picture, every single letter, anything that I had sent her, and it would be, it looked like it was 100 years old. It was wrinkled. Obviously, she looked through it many times a day. Um, later, she told me she slept with it under her pillow, and that was her biggest prize possession that she actually had. So five minutes of our time sending an email means the world to them. 
Um, it really does. And so throughout the day, um, she had never traveled out of her village. It was her, her mother, her one-year-old baby sister, and somebody from her community. Um, immediately, you could tell that she wasn't in the best shape as far as uh, physical needs being met. Uh, there was odor. She was very dirty. Her baby sister was sick, and that was probably the worst thing to see. Um, no diapers, so the baby was sick and vomiting and diarrhea, but yet there was no diaper to change her. Um, so we went, and we had a day, and uh, it's marrying my husband, having my kids, and then I would rank this in my top five. It really was that um, meaningful. So I just want to be a compassion ambassador to all of you to let you know how little of our time it could be to make such a difference in a child. And I think this video really shows everything that I don't need to say anymore. Um, you'll see as she opens some gifts that we took, what her favorite thing was and how much it meant to her and her love for Jesus. Y ahí puedes ir poniendo todas las fotos que te traigo, que te mando. Un álbum para pintar. It's all like coloring. Ajá. She, another bag. Otra mochilita. There's more in the front pocket. Hay más en el bolsillo de adelante, dice. It's a Spanish Bible. Es una Biblia en español para ti. Qué lindo, So bring it home, Shannon. <laughs> so you can see that, um, I mean, it was a simple Spanish Bible, but that was now her new prized possession. And um, it's really uh, not, I mean, it was not easy to make it to Ecuador, but that was God's ordain, ordained plan. And I was there, and I was there for that day, and I don't think anything, she gave me more than I, I could ever, ever give her back. So I think the big lesson in this is, how much joy we bring them, but it's tenfold back to us and how much we learned from them and how much uh, they taught us. We've been working through some of the stories that Jesus used to illustrate um, parables and illustrations and metaphors and things. And we're to this, this story now that, that Jesus told that I think um, will naturally bring to mind the, the idea of hell. And, uh, and I want to explore that a little bit. And just to let you know up front, got some, got some disclaimers here. Um, I have probably spent more time over the past like six or seven years trying to get some clarity about what the Bible really teaches about the concept of the afterlife and hell. 
Um, I've read a lot, read a lot of scripture, read a lot of scholars, researched um, some of the ancient uh, Christian writings in the first few centuries of Christianity, uh, trying to get some closure, some, some finality on, okay, here, here it is. This is the right uh, doctrine of, of hell. And somebody's got to find my iPhone thing, looking for their iPhone. I just heard it. Um, <clears throat> what's frustrating is I, I don't feel like I found that closure. Like for me, I think, I think there are three biblical views, maybe more that I just haven't uncovered, but I, I find three views that, that are both biblical, um, represented in early Christian thought, like in the first few centuries of Christianity, and even today in, um, in modern scholarship and Christian thinking. And, and, I, and I see strong cases for all three views and, and having studied it a lot, um, because I just, I've always enjoyed studying Scripture. Um, having studied it a lot, I don't know what my view is. So I don't know whether that's discouraging or encouraging to you. Like, I've often wondered if you were to hook me up to a, uh, a lie detector test and ask me, like, what's your view? And I said all three, like, which would it light up green? Like, what, what, what it, and, and I don't know. Um, so, so there's that. Um, also, I, I think that, you know, one of the things that, that needs to be kind of marinating in our brains when we look at things like this is the ancient Jewish thought, eh? the, the rabbis, well before the time of Jesus, on through the time of Jesus. Our modern Western minds, like our modern Western minds, tend to, to look to things like Scripture and say, what's the right answer? What's the right view? What does this mean? Or in my professors in, in Bible college would say, what was the author's intended meaning for this? But that was a very different view than the ancients had of Scripture, which was they called it turning the gem, or they talked in terms of like when you approach Scripture, it's like you have a hammer and you bust open a rock and it shatters into hundreds of pieces and then you examine each piece. And, and so they really appreciated looking at Scripture from different angles. They would even like play with words and do rhymes with and letters scrambled and like, like they just looked at scripture differently than we did and they found joy and community and so one rabbi would say I see this and another rabbi would say no I see this and another rabbi would say I see this and this and this and this and they appreciated the different views and kind of the relevance that, that brought to Scripture because it was constantly, I don't want to say changing, but there were different ways that you could approach different Scriptures, and they appreciated Scripture in that lens, whereas we typically, um, we find comfort in the idea of Scripture right, wrong, black, white. And so there's just that dynamic that comes into play when we search the ancient Scriptures to try to figure out. Um, there, there's also this thing, that, that um, the rabbis in Jesus' day and time and before, <clears throat> that they discouraged people from looking into the future. It's basically like you don't look up. They would say, like, don't look up, don't look down, don't look forward, don't look back. 
Instead, look at what God is doing right in front of you right now because they were much, much, much more bent on living a life in the here and the now and redeeming whatever we could, being light and, and living well and taking advantage of, of, of um, helping people and opportunities to serve right here and right now. So that's where they put, uh, where, whereas unfortunately Christianity has so much become about like Raise your hand, pray the prayer, and you're good for heaven. And this is kind of a waiting room until we die when the good stuff, like it's more about like getting out of here now. For them it was, no, you don't want to get out of here now. This is your opportunity right now to, to show God and to please God and to serve others and to live in community right here, right now. So they just didn't think a lot about the afterlife whereas we are much more interested in those kinds of things. Okay, let me read uh, Matthew 13. This is our story. This is our illustration from Jesus, and then we'll get rolling. So Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in a field, in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. And when the wheat sprouted and formed heads, the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in the field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, because while you're pulling up the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let them both grow together until the harvest. And at that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, and then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. Jesus would explain things later. This is in verse 36 of Matthew 13. Then he left the crowd and went into a house, and his disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, The one who sowed the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world, and the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Now, with that parable, Jesus is almost certainly calling his first century crowd to a passage they would have been very familiar with. There was a passage in Malachi, which was the last book of the Old Testament. It would have been the last scripture that they would have had. It's from hundreds of years before the time of Jesus, and it depicted a day they were under basically Babylonian oppression. In this passage in, in Malachi 4, depicted the day when God would, would um, redeem um, Israel, when he would step in and say, no more uh, oppression. Um, so I'm going to read that passage, and then I think you'll see how this new thing that Jesus taught would call them back to this old thing. So this is Malachi chapter 4. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left on them. But for you who revere my name, 
the sun of righteousness shine like the sun. See the way there's that connection there? There's the furnace. The sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays, and you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. When you, uh, then you will trample on the wicked. They will be ashes under your, the soles of your feet on the day that I act, says the Lord Almighty. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and the laws I gave him at Horeb uh, <clears throat> for all Israel. Remember what it means to be my people is essentially what he's saying. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the gray, that great and dreadful day of the, when the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children in the hearts of the children to their parents, make everything right, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. So um, you can see that this new parable that Jesus taught almost certainly called people back to this old reference in Scripture where God said, one day I will blaze like a fire making all things right, putting an end to evil, wickedness, oppression, that's all going to come to an end. The question is, what do we do with this teaching? And so, here are some of the questions that I tend to ask myself as I approach teachings like this. First of all, I'm going to ask myself, was this meant to describe the afterlife? Like, when Jesus gave this, was it, was it meant for us to look at it and say, oh, that's what happens on Judgment Day, specifically. Was it meant to scare people into obedience? Or was it meant to like comfort people who had the boot of oppression, whether it be the religious leaders of the day, or, or the Roman Empire, or in Malachi's case, the Babylonian Empire? Was it meant to, to tell them, hey, there will be a day when God intervenes? Like, which was it meant to do, or was it meant to do both? Was it meant to give you a visual for what happens to your atheist grandfather? Was it meant to tell you that just because you had your possessions seized because you refused to say that Caesar is Lord, because you believe that Jesus is Lord, that there would be a day when God would act on your behalf? Like, what was that passage meant to do for the listener, and that helps us understand how we should then interpret it. Well, I think regardless of how you answer those questions, that terminology can't help but call to mind uh, images of, of hell, of an afterlife, of a judgment day that then leads to something that we associate with a fiery furnace or with, with fires. And so what I want to do then is I want to springboard off of this and walk you through what I think are three biblical uh, views of hell that are also present in the ancient writings of the early Christians and also present in modern scholarship and Christian thinking and, and famous pastors and, and stuff like that. And then you can explore this and uh, take it and run with it and, and decide for yourself. And then I'll give a few closing thoughts. So let's look at the first view of hell, which is present in uh, Tom and Jerry, Bugs Bunny, and the Bible. Therefore has merit. <clears throat> we'll call this eternal conscious torment. Right? Then that sounds pretty awful, right? Eternal conscious torment means always, always, billions and billions and billions of years, torture that you are aware of. Eternal conscious torment. 
So this is found in Scripture. The idea is based in Scripture. I'm going to read to you from Matthew 25. Then he will say to those on his left, this is talking very similar, the idea of a, of a weeding out, so to speak, on a, on a judgment day. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat, and I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, you didn't clothe me. I was sick in prison, you didn't look after me. Then, this is verse 46, then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. So if that's translated accurately, it looks right there, eternal punishment, right? They will go to eternal punishment. There it is, eternal conscious punishment, period. Now, Augustine, late 400s, so, you know, a few centuries after Jesus, he was the Christian theologian who really took this concept and solidified it. The church then, which incidentally was highly involved in government, people, um, they kind of labeled this as the official view. So before Augustine, you see some of the different ideas but then the church, which was like really connected with Roman government of the day, took Augustine's ideas and said, yep, that's it. And then they label heresy. And when heresy is punishable by being burned at the stake, like when your hell begins real time on a stake being burned alive, you line up pretty quick, right? So some of those different streams of ideas cease to be pretty quickly when here's the official view. So I think that's important to know that, that, yes, this eternal conscious torment seems to be in Scripture. It also is in um, ancient church thought. But at the same time, all the other threads that we're going to look at were, were, were um, squashed pretty quickly when it was officially labeled heresy to think other than that, and the punishment for heresy was often being burned at the stake. So that's, just, that's an important little data point um, to keep in mind as, as you explore this. So... Um, that's the concept of eternal conscious torment. Uh, those who do not embrace Christ in their lifetime uh, burn in hell for billions and billions and billions and billions of years completely aware of, of their torture. And that's by no means like the only passage. that you. There are other passages, but it's the, that, that's the same uh, uh, thought. So, now, I thought that this was like the one and only biblical view. Like, if you're going to be orthodox, if you're going to not be a heretic, if you're going to be a trusted teacher of Scripture, that's your view. Like, for, for much of my adult life, that's just where my mind went, and I thought that's, that's what you have to believe. But I started to notice, and I'm just going to kind of walk you through for the rest of my time here, kind of a stream of consciousness. I, I, I started to notice when I read um, some other things that the Scripture seemed to say f for instance, Malachi 4 that we just read seems to say that, like, well, how can you be ashes? How can there be nothing that remains if you're burning in hell actively? Or Jesus who says, um, with me you have life, without me you don't have life. Or the Apostle Paul who seems to say at the resurrection, 
eternal life is a gift or this concept of perishing, that you either perish or you have eternal life. And I started to ask myself, how can you perish if you're never going to perish? Like you're not perishing if the end isn't perishment. And so I thought that was funny. Um, um, so first I really wrestled with, am I even allowed to question this? Like, am I going to end up going to eternal conscious torment for questioning eternal conscious torment? Is, that the, is there a punishment in there for that? Um, I, but as I began to research, I found that, that this has been a stream of thought since the beginning of the church itself. And, and there are, there, there's like, like Irenaeus who lived at the turn of like, like this guy lived like a hundred years after Jesus, one of the first church leaders. He, this is what he wrote. For this reason, the Lord declared to those who showed themselves ungrateful towards him, if you have not been faithful in that which is little, who will give you that which is great? Indicating that those who in this brief temporal life have shown themselves ungrateful to him, who bestowed it shall justly not receive from him length of days forever and ever. In other words, what he was advocating there just a few decades after the time of Jesus was what's, what's called the doctrine of annihilationism. Annihilationism, which says that God brings an end to people, brings to an end people who die apart from the forgiveness of Jesus. In other words, your punishment is not eternal conscious torment, but rather there is an eternal fire that rages forever and ever, but that's like where you are incinerated. So like that's the good news of those two views. There's a chance that you don't burn in hell forever, you're just incinerated. Um, makes it a pretty serious doctrine, right? When the good news is you're just incinerated. Um, but, but I learned that both in scripture and in ancient writing, and there, there are guys like John Stott, who is a very famous pastor, and, and actually many, many, many scholars. It's my perception, this may not be true, but it's my perception that most scholarship is built around the idea of annihilationism, where the soul is destroyed by God and ceases to be. Um, so there's, there's that as a, as a second potential view. So I, I, I kind of felt the tension from that, but I also thought, okay, I can, you know, two views. It's either eternal conscious torment or it's annihilationism. One of those two, I don't have to worry about it. I'm connected with Jesus, and I'm going to tell people that, hey, here's a way out from both options, um, Jesus and the cross. I started to notice, though, and this brought a lot of tension and still does because I'm not over any of this tension, okay? It's just there, and I'm frustrated that it's there. I'm frustrated that we didn't get bullet points. Like, and you will believe this and this and this and this. Ready, go. Um, I started to notice in Scripture that there, there seemed to be uh, something else that might be going on and, and, and as I researched that, and I was very reluctant to even look into this, the, this third view, but there it is in the early Christian church, in contemporary uh, Christian thought as well, and it seems to be a biblical view as well. So I'm going to read you some, I'm going to call this, I'm going to call this uh, redemptionism, redemptionism. 
and I kind of made that word up. I don't know. It's, it's really called Christian universalism, but I like the idea of redemptionism better because um, I think the word universalism has some already negative connotations with it. So um, I'm going to read you some passages from the Bible, and we'll just see where it takes us, okay, because it's not my fault that they're in here. <clears throat> Psalm 22. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust, which I think means like dying, I think that's how you interpret that, will kneel before him. So this speaks of all the rich of the earth will, will worship and all will remember all the families of God bow down. To, and, and so I, I ask myself, and I don't like that, this, that, that it's there. Like I, I don't like that I ask myself these questions, but how can there be billions of people who die apart from Christ? Either they reject the concept or they just don't know of the concept or they get something else that they think that works for them with life and they, they die apart from the cross. They die apart from the forgiveness of Jesus. Billions of people, how can they be in, in hell when Psalm 22 says that somehow all nations, everyone who goes down to the dust, all the rich will turn and, and like, what's going on there? And that just starts more as a question than anything of how, how do you reconcile that? Now, Romans 5. For if by the trespass of one man, Adam, that's who he's talking about, death reigned through the one man. So the idea is through Adam's sin entered the human race and all people then die because of Adam's sin. How much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Now, I'm good if Paul stopped there because it says, how much more will those who receive, meaning you receive it, you got it, okay? But the problem is he goes on. Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so through Adam's one sin, 100% of the human race now dies... Just as that, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. Now, doesn't matter what I said before it or after it. If I had, if I had just got up in like a preaching, preaching class in my conservative college and said, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification of life for all people. If I would have said that, I'd have probably got, I don't know if I'd have got like, kicked out of college, but I would have been severely reprimanded. <clears throat> they would have said, that's irresponsible to even put out there that there's a possibility. But when I look at that, it seems to me that if I, th there's, a, there's a possibility here that those who receive is linked with all people. And I don't know how it works, I just know that there's a possibility there. Now, I'm going to move on. Colossians 1. For in Jesus, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth. So all things 
is labeled as things that God created. Visible, invisible, throne, powers, rulers. Like Paul goes on poetically to say, like he's, he wants us to get an idea in our mind of all things. Heaven, earth, thrones, powers, rulers. They've been created through him and for him. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So there's this honest and uninvited question. If there are billions of people burning in hell for billions and billions and billions of years that are never reconciled with God, how can Colossians 1? And I don't like this question, and it sounds bad asking it, but I just ask it. Yeah, I heard that. I'm glad I put a K on the end of that ask, too. <laughs> Romans 11. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. Now, what about eternal punishment? If it turns out that God redeems everything, which as the dad of the universe, he certainly has the right to. Um, if it turns out that God, through the cross, we learned it's through the cross, if somehow God, like, over-applies the blood of Jesus and redeems all things through it, if it turns out that that's what happens, number one, we'll have some people who say, um, well, how's that? And God will say things like, my son, you have always been with me and everything I have is yours. Or, why are you mad that I'm generous? I gave you what I told you I would pay you. You have eternity. So we'll, we'll have that, but I also think that we'll look at eternal punishment as a mistranslation. Because the truth is, and this is fact, the word translated eternal is ionos, which comes from ion, which is where we get the word eon. And it can absolutely, without a doubt, be translated age. And so it is a, it is a fact that there is absolutely no debating that when we see the translation eternal punishment, it could also accurately be translated age of punishment. Um, and I'm, I'm not, like, I, this, is, this is serious stuff, and I'm, I'm not up here trying to mislead anybody. I'm telling you that it can be translated age of punishment. And if God reconciles the whole thing, maybe somehow that eternal fire or that age of fire is an age of punishment that somehow then produces reconciliation. I don't know how it's all going to work out, but here's what I know. I see, and that also, incidentally, that view of redemptionism is right there, or Christian universalism is there in the ancients. Um, Origin and some of the other church leaders very much advocated that this is not going to be done until God has reconciled absolutely everything. So that was a very clear vein of Christian thinking. And there are people like, like from C.S. Lewis to Billy Graham that say some things that, ver that sound very much like redemptionism. So um, I see those three 
as very real possibilities. And, and I honestly, um, I feel like I have studied this stuff to death and could talk off the top of my head for hours about this stuff. Um, tons of scripture for all three of those. And I don't know how it's all going to be reconciled. Um, but I have a few closing thoughts here to wrap this thing up. Um, number one, I, I just, I want you to know that and I want you to wrestle with it. Um, and, I, and I want you to ask questions and I want you to study scripture. I, I had a family member, strong Christian, um, but I'll never forget the day she said, Alex, we are not to ask questions. And she listed a few like common biblical questions, which I don't want you thinking about right now because I want you focused on this, but like honest, like, and you don't ask those questions. And, and I think the truth is we can't help but. We can try to avoid those questions. Guess what? They're still there. And I think God gave us his word to be explored for that. So that's the first thing is just read scripture and ask questions because I think we're cheating ourselves of part of the whole journey by not asking honest questions or being afraid to explore biblical concepts. Second thing, biblically speaking, Jesus is the one who paid the price for sins. So forgiveness of sins has been offered up through the cross. It's not debatable. Biblically speaking, that is an absolute. And anything or anyone who is reconciled, however far God takes it, it's been reconciled through the cross. Jesus also called himself the Son of Man, which can be translated human one. So in spite of being God, and in spite of dying and resurrecting, he also came to show us what it means to be fully human. So whether you're talking about reconciling your soul or reconciling your life here and now, Jesus is the center of all of that. Another point. I find it most helpful to plan worst-case scenario so I think it's most helpful for us to live with the possibility of eternal conscious torment. Like, let's live with that sense of urgency because we have neighbors, we have coworkers, we have friends, we have acquaintances that are very far from God right now. And with the possibility of eternal conscious torment, I would rather stand on judgment day like, I'm good. I've done the stuff to follow Jesus. I'm good and I can know that and we can know that. But I would much rather know that I lived my life with the urgency that took the eternity of others very seriously than to live like with redemptionism, think, hey, we're all good. We're all good. I'm just going to do my thing and let you do your thing. And then it turns out not. And I didn't do anything. Like I didn't live with a sense of urgency. I don't want to face that. Finally, Paul, who through Romans um, um, throws out a lot of, of, of implications, I mean, we read some of them. God's grace is big. But he says that we should never, ever, ever use God's grace as an excuse to take the, the foot off the gas. Like, like, we should never use it as an excuse to live loosely, to live carelessly. He's like, let the grace of God and the possibilities of God's grace 
be the reason that you throw yourself into a light of a, a, a life of, of light and love and service. No matter what we conclude, our responsibility is to never take God's grace for granted, to never use it as an excuse to, to, to live however we want, but rather to use it as a motivation to be as, as pure as we possibly can in a world that is desperate to see God in us. Regardless of any of this, the Bible is clear that through the cross, Jesus defeated death. Jesus defeated sin. And so let's take the time that we have now to fully embrace what he did, to secure our eternity, and then to live as bright of a light for all to see as we can for the time that we have here. Uh, let's stand and pray. Father, we turn to you now with this great... Uh, with the mystery of death, with the mystery of heaven and hell and the afterlife, and, and, and we trust you. Your ways are high above our ways, your thoughts are high above our thoughts, and we trust you. And we thank you that while we may not know for sure what happens next, you have extended to us safety. Your son, the only one who came to save us, the only one who came as our Redeemer, who defeated death, who defeated hell, who defeated our great enemies. And we rely on him this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.